many in Lord's Day worship to celebrate the incarnation of you, God, in the person of your son, in the baby born to Mary and Joseph. Cause us to cherish Christ today. Give us the will to decide to cherish Christ and then enable it to happen by the miracle of your Holy Spirit's touch. Don't let anybody malign or ignore the child Christ before our eyes in this passage. But let all cherish him. For he is God and man. The savior of our souls and the Lord of glory. And the hope of all who come to him. We worship you and cherish you even now over the word, Lord Jesus, as we have sung, as we have prayed. As we will sing aloud to a lost and needy community tonight, we now worship over this word. Be glorified and cherished in our hearts, I pray, through Christ. Amen. Mary and Joseph were on the run for their lives they had been forced by Caesar's dictum to return to the village of their birth to be counted and pay taxes to the Roman emperor. So they were on their way back to Bethlehem. That's why they ended up there. What some intended for selfish ends, the paying of taxes, was God's using it for good. For he had prophesied that the Christ would be born in Bethlehem, the city of David. And so Jesus, born to Mary and Joseph, was born in the city of Bethlehem soon. Shortly thereafter, news would go out to the local governor, Herod, an Edomite, who had only love and desire for himself in the building up of his own kingdom, would find out that a king of the Jews had been born in Bethlehem. And he would find that king of the Jews a threat. So he would send out his army soldiers to try to find all the little boys under the age of two in Bethlehem and make sure they were killed. In the world, then as now, people respond to Jesus Christ either by saying, I cherish him. I hope that's what you're saying. I cherish him. Others will malign him and hate him and want to kill him. And others, many, many others will simply ignore him. They will simply say, there's a pandemic. Or there's interesting things in the golf world. Or there's interesting things in my business. Or in my finances. Or in my health. Or in this culture, or in politics, or in 10,000 other things that could distract you from the reason you exist, which is to cherish Jesus Christ. The aim of my message and the aim of this passage, I believe with all my heart, is that we would become great and mighty cherishers of the Lord Jesus Christ. How do I know if I cherish him? How do I know? How can I say, yes, I cherish Christ and have concrete, solid, practical evidence that inside of me there's real cherishing of Jesus Christ. Jesus said later in his ministry in Matthew 10, whoever loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Can you imagine making an idol out of our families or our traditions or our food or our pleasurable experiences and lifting them up so high that we value them more than we treasure Christ? We can't imagine it. It's happening everywhere. Have you ever noticed 
If you want to know what cherishing Christ looks like, if you want to know what cherishing Christ ought to be in your own heart, if you want to know what cherishing Christ is in your heart right now, you can look with me to this wonderful discovery that I was uh, helped to make through a scholar named Patrick Schreiner in his study on the book of Matthew. He drew a, a parallel I'd never seen before that I'll now draw for you. Think about Abraham and his birth of his son Isaac to his elderly wife, Sarah. And then think about Joseph and Mary and the birth of Jesus Christ. And think about these two families and these two miraculous births and hold them close together in your mind and you can compare and see how similar they are. Both fathers are told by God in a dream or vision to step out in obedience. Both men, Abraham and Joseph, are told to have no fear but to step out in obedience by faith. Both have barren wives, one due to age, the other due to still being a virgin. Both men are called just or righteous. Both Abraham and Joseph have the exact same wording. This I'd never seen before. The exact same wording announcing their son's birth. Genesis 17, 19. Sarah, your wife, shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. Matthew 1, She shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Both have an everlasting covenant made by God with their sons. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him, God says. And both are willing men to step out in faith, to take a massive risk, to spend an incredible cost in order that they might honor and obey God. Abraham was willing to risk the life of his son Isaac on the altar. Joseph was willing to risk his entire standing, his reputation, his honor, and his character by being willing to take Mary as his wife. What does this all mean? Just this. In both Abraham and Joseph, we see exactly what it looks like to cherish Christ. That's what it looks like to cherish Christ. It costs something. Jesus says, come follow me. Leave everything. And I will make you my disciples. Abraham and his covenant has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And Abraham is a cherisher of Christ. So also is Joseph a cherisher of Christ. That's exactly why we have this story written for us exactly as it is. So that we would look at the beautiful Christ child and see through Joseph's eyes how very precious and worth cherishing Christ is. Cherishing is this passion that wells up inside every one of us that says, I want to forego and put aside and sacrifice and bear a risk for anything valuable in order that my values that I set aside might all point and honor and reflect greater value upon Christ. So this passage calls us to sacrifice and you could ask yourself, what am I giving up in order that I could be a follower of Christ? What do people see in me that I have set aside in order that I might be seen as one who cherishes Christ all the more? The way we are made to cherish Christ in a supernatural way in Matthew's writing is he shows us all the way through the lineage and genealogy how Christ was the son of God, the son of Abraham and the son of David. Now he shows us in this account of the birth of Christ how very precious and cherishworthy Christ is. He shows it to us by giving us three origins, three origins of Christ. That is, what is he and who is he and where did he come from and what's he here to do? 
God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. That's what we have to proclaim because that's what Jesus came to achieve. He's on a mission. He's on a mission that's bound up in those three origins. First, we know his name to be Jesus. Second, we know that his title is the Christ. And third, we know he was of the Holy Spirit. There's my outline. It's the outline of this Christmas paragraph. Let's look at each of those. And in the intent, may we find this happening, that as you ponder who Jesus is, who Christ is, and who the Holy Spirit is, you will find yourself having cherishing, gen genuinely welling up inside your heart so that you say, I am not faking it. I really do cherish Christ. I cherish Christ enough to stand out by a nearly frozen lake in December, singing for an hour the carols of Christ. Just the difficulty of being out there will be a huge witness to everybody who hears us. Look at these crazy people. They're not even getting paid to do this. First, Jesus. Verse 21, she will bear a son and you should call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. You have to feel how odd and how striking this is that they would, the angel would tell Joseph to call his name Jesus. This is how you're going to cherish this baby. You're going to call his name Jesus. Do you remember what happened in the first chapter of Luke where Jesus' relative John is born? Do you remember that his father, Zechariah, elderly, his mother, Elizabeth, also elderly, that they didn't believe that they could have a son at their age. And so Zechariah, whose life and ministry was based on what he could say, was brought to an end because he was made mute. And then for nine months, as the child is growing, his faith is growing. And when the child is born, they come to circumcise the child. And the women are discussing, what should we name him? And they say, well, shouldn't he be named John? I mean, his father's name is John. And in Hebrew times and, and many other cultures, you just name the son what the father's name was. He'll just be a junior. Elizabeth said, no, his name is John. It won't be Zechariah. And that was puzzling to everyone because the normal would have been name him after his physical father, Zechariah. Then taking a writing tablet, Zechariah writes down, his name is John. And they all wondered and immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke and he blessed God. That's Luke 159. Do you know why Luke records that event? Luke records the event that Zechariah's son was named John in order that we'd all be on the edge of our seat to see what Joseph names his son. Is Joseph going to name his baby, his child, the one he adopts, Joseph? Is he going to name him David? Is he going to name him Abraham? Or one of the other names in Matthew's lineage in Matthew chapter 1? There are no Jesuses in that list. There's hardly any Jesuses in the Old Testament. There's only one closely related, and that's Joshua. The angel Gabriel told Joseph to name the baby Jesus because Jesus means Yahweh saves. You see, Jesus was named after his father. Joseph is saying, I own this child and adopt him and love him and I will raise him. But all the more, I am going to worship him because he is Yahweh saving me. Yahweh saves. That's what Jesus means. 
This is a baby with an eternal destiny. Listen to how the Apostle Paul explains it. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Jesus came in order that he might be Yahweh saves Jesus to turn heinous, criminal, law-breaking street orphans like you and me into beloved sons by the power of his Holy Spirit and his salvation. His message is bound up in his name. Jesus came to save his people from their sins. Now, who are his people? Surely Matthew is writing to Jews, and the Jews would have immediately said, it's us, and they would have been right. Yes, it is the Jewish people Jesus came to save, but under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul says, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone to believe, who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. Where did Paul get that? He got it from Matthew's own writing. Matthew, a Jew, writing about a lineage of Jews to Jews. He says this, Jesus proclaims in Matthew 3, 9, do not presume to say to yourselves, Jewish leaders, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. God could take that chair and make a believer. God could take the salt that's collecting on the side of the road and make believer out of that. That's what he did with Adam. Matthew 8, verse 11, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, showing exactly who his people are. Here's Jesus explaining why the, the wise men came from the east and why they came offering gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh to worship and to cherish Christ. They had read the word and they had believed it and traveled all that distance. So rightly, Charles Wesley in his great Christmas hymn says, Hark the herald angels sing. And he comes to the line, glory to the newborn king, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled, joyful all ye nations rise. Jesus died for his people across the nations throughout time and history. All nations comprise his people. Oh, let the Ojibwe and the uh, Lakutere and let the Hutu and all African tribes, the Tama, let all the tribes of Indonesia, let all the peoples of the Philippines and Southeast Asia, let all the peoples of India and, and all the peoples of China and Russia who combine together to plan dark political plans and yet a mighty and sovereign God is saving them from the inside out. In Matthew 26, Jesus explains how he, in fact, will fully and perfectly succeed in saving his people from their sins. You and I, as we trust him, included. He's sitting down with his disciples at the very last Passover, the very first Lord's Supper. And he says, take, eat, this is my body. And he broke it and gave it to the disciples and they ate and he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said to them, drink all of it, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The many there is not just Jewish many, but many people from all the tribes and nations and peoples of the earth. 
And it's fully successful. It's not just a hope. It's not just an offering that hopefully some will come. Hopefully if they have a mysterious thing happen in their heads, that that will then make the mission successful. No, Jesus says, I know that it's going to be successful when I die for the sins of my people. How do I know? Because he says, I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. You're coming to the kingdom. I'm buying your way. And I'll have what I purchase. Are your sins forgiven? Are you worshiping and cherishing Jesus because your sins are forgiven? Do you come to Christmas of 2021 settled and peaceful in the Lord saying, I know that my sins are forgiven. I'm ready to die tonight. I'm ready to go and meet the Lord right now. I have seen and tasted that he is good. I have confessed what he has brought to my mind. And I am clean before the eyes of the living God and before the eyes of the world. Oh, I have not lived a perfect and sinless life. None of us has. If anyone were to count our sins against us, who could stand? But do you know that your sins are clean and washed away by the blood of Christ? He was hanging there on the cross. On the place called Golgotha, the place of the skull. Carrying out the promises made in and through his ancestor, King David. Wiping away the sins of all who believe in him. We cherish this child because his name is Jesus. But only God can forgive sins. What's a little baby doing forgiving sins? An adopted little son of Joseph, born to this teenager Mary. What's he doing forgiving sins if only God can forgive sins? Remember they asked of Jesus when he was forgiving in Mark 2. Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Aha! Why is it only correct for God to forgive sins? If, if I sin against another person and you come along and say to that person, I forgive you. That's kind of silly. Someone should come to me and say, I forgive you, or you forgive, do you ask for forgiveness for sinning against that person? Who has the right to go around interjecting themselves and saying, if there's a squabble between two people, I can say I forgive you? That's presumptuous and arrogant and kind of ridiculous. Yet, God places him forward, himself forward and he says, every sin that's ever committed on the face of the earth is ultimately a sin against me. Every sin that happens between two people, two nations, every sin that ever happens inside someone's heart, and the vast majority of sins are sins of the mind and heart, are sins against God. When God proclaims forgiveness, God is saying, I'm the one that sin most offends. And Jesus comes, born to Mary and Joseph, and the song of the angels and the instructions given to Joseph, is to name him Jesus because he came to forgive sins. Jesus is, in fact, God. This is the book of Jesus Christ. Matthew says in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the son of David, the son of Abraham. His title, his second name, is the Christ. 
which means he's the Messiah of God. He's the son of God, appointed and foretold for centuries upon centuries. And here he has arrived, coming through the line of David, now the very Messiah that Israel and the whole world, whether it knows it or not, has been yearning and aching for for centuries. Israel wanted a smaller Messiah. They wanted the standard version, not the deluxe version. They wanted just a Messiah who would receive taxes and rule like a Caesar and fight for them like a warrior king and liberate them as ethnic Hebrews. So what they got was a baby, a baby who is, in fact, the Christ, the Christ who is himself God. This Christ who, in fact, has the power and authority because he is one with God, equal with God, a person of the Trinity, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. So Matthew chapter 1 and verse 22 says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Isaiah's prophecy doesn't just mean God's spirit is with us, or God's word is present with us, or his glory is present with us. It means God himself has come to dwell among us. Emmanuel, as we just sang, is a fulfillment of the prophecy that Jesus not only takes away our sins, but he is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is God's son with us. This is the very source and foundation of all of the rest of Christianity. Everything else in Christianity is a belief that Jesus Christ was born as both fully human and fully divine. We don't understand it. How can it be? We'll see in a moment the Holy Spirit overshadows Mary. The power of the Most High comes upon her. And in her womb is conceived the Son of God in the person of a tiny baby. This is why many religions cry out blasphemy against us. This is why many choose to ignore the Christian religion because it seems so far-fetched and impossible to believe. It seems so far from the natural and modern man to be able to understand or agree with. People simply reject the virgin conception as impossible. And yet, here's the witness of Scripture. And the witness inside the heart of everyone in this room or who's watching by live stream who actually believes and says, I know that I have never seen before, nor have I, do I ever expect again to see one person who has two natures, divine and human. But we see one person, Jesus Christ, with two natures. He is fully divine and he is fully man. In the Old Testament, when God first came, he was communing and having conversation before sin with Adam and Eve in the cool of the evening in the garden. He was blessing and providing. He was loving and being loved. Then sin happened. And every time God shows up after sin happens, God shows up in terrifying ways. Have you ever thought about that? He shows up to Job as an F5 tornado. He's a self-directed furnace burning everything in its path to Abraham. He's a skyscraper of fire to Moses and the people of Israel. He's an all-consuming, priest-evicting glory storm in the temple. God is always terrifying when he comes to enter into the world tainted by sin. It's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God unless the hands of the living God are those tiny little perfectly formed hands of a newborn baby. Now we see God as a tiny, dependent, vulnerable, 
hunted and hated baby, born to a young, insignificant, impoverished, hunted mother and father. Now Christ, the living God, wraps his tiny little perfectly formed five fingers around your tiny little finger and pulls you to himself. He was terrifying before. He will be terrifying again. But for now, he comes cooing and blowing bubbles. For Christ to be born in the humblest of ways reveals the depth of his love for sinners like you and me. Do you know that's why he was born a baby? He was born a baby so that you and the universal witness of every human being on the planet would have welling up inside of you a desire to bow low and cherish. That's why he was born a baby. How can you overlook a terrifying God who conceives of himself in Mary's womb and births himself as a baby? He means for you to have no barriers to your cherishing him with every fiber of your being right now. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Cherish him as the one who takes away your sins. Cherish him as God born in the most delightful and cherishable of packages, a tiny baby. This is the central truth of Christianity. God is with us. Christmas means Jesus Christ is God and God dwells within us. He comes to dwell within the very creation that he made. All the promises of David and Abraham are true. And so the inv invitation for every human being to hear and to let settle deep inside their spirit is cherish me more than your family. Cherish me more than your next breath. Cherish me more than your job or your income. Cherish me more than your self-expression. Cherish me more than, than the settledness of your mind, than the ordering of your emotions. Cherish me above all things. I would be your God. Christ's mission is captured in his name, Jesus, in his name, Christ, the Messiah. And finally, we see of his origin and his mission, he is of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 18. Twice it's named in this paragraph. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And then verse 20. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. This is a reference to exactly what we saw back in Luke chapter 1, verse 35. And you know this passage well. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So I looked up what this word overshadow means. What does it mean for the Holy Spirit and the power of God to overshadow Mary? And I found two very, very interesting passages. First, both times when Jesus is transfigured with Peter and John there, and then Moses and Elijah at his side, it says that there was a bright cloud that overshadowed him. And that's the Holy Spirit. So this bright cloud overshadows Jesus at his transfiguration just the way the bright cloud overshadowed Mary and Jesus was conceived. The second time is when Peter's walking along the road in Acts 5 and people are bringing the sick so that his shadow might fall on them and they would be healed and saved. 
from which I gather you must have the help of the Holy Spirit to be awakened to wonder and beauty and power in the true identity of the Son of God. We must have the help of the Holy Spirit for our souls to be healed and forgiven. In other words, it takes the shadow of God to see the light of Christ in God. The same Holy Spirit who conceived Christ in Mary's womb must conceive Christ in our hearts. That awakening by the Spirit is described in Galatians 4, 6. I read earlier, and because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. That's your salvation. That's how everyone who is saved got saved. The Spirit of the Lord comes dwelling inside a, a dull and empty heart and causes there to be a flash of awareness, of, of, of knowledge, of understanding, where this, the eyes of the heart now look upon Christ and see him, not just as an ancient figure, but as a God, the God, the Savior, the one who takes away sins, the one who comes as the Messiah, fulfilling all the promises of God, and the one who is worthy of all worship, of all cherishing. So ponder this with me. Galatians 4, 6 said that it was the spirit of his son that comes into our hearts, calls, causing us to look to God as our father and to trust Christ as our savior. That's the spirit of the son. It's the same Holy Spirit who overshadowed at his transfiguration. He's overshadowed by his own spirit. It's kind of hard to think about, but it's wonderful. But it gets even harder to think about when you say, okay, Here's Mary's empty womb. She has not known a husband. And the spirit of the son comes upon Mary to birth the embryo of the son. That pretty much stretches my brain as far as it can go. The spirit of the son comes upon Mary and the body of the son is conceived in her empty womb. That makes me cherish him. It's the same wonderful glory that happens so that this little, little baby would grow to full gestation and be born and then come to know who his mother and his father are and he would call Joseph Abba and he would call his mother Mama. And he would come to know that he is actually Conceived by the Holy Spirit of God and he would soon come to know at some point in his young age that he is actually the son of Yahweh, the living God. We have the similar experience where we have this, this sense in which the Holy Spirit comes upon us and he awakens, he causes, he conceives in us knowledge of the son by his miraculous power. We look to God and no longer see him as judge or as authority only or as one who is against us, but we see in Christ, we see God completely for us. We see everything about God loving us and everything about God welcoming us. And we look back on our lives and we see everything about our lives was God drawing me to himself. And we call out to God, Jesus has made himself so precious to me. He's taken away my sins. He's shown me that he's God. 
And he's given me the ability to cry out to you, Abba, Father. Up until Jesus was born, no Jew and no person on the place of planet Earth was ever able to call Yahweh Father. Oh, he was the father of the nations and he was the father of Israel in, in a generic creation sense. But no one said he's my personal father. Here, because Jesus is born and because we're born again, we're able to call God Abba Father. Do you cherish Jesus as the one who takes away your sins? Do you cherish Jesus as the Christ, the fulfillment of all the Messiah promises and God among us? Do you cherish the fact that the Holy Spirit is present and dwelling not only among us, but within every person who has had that born again experience? You might say, well, if I need to cherish the way Joseph and Abraham cherished, they were both willing to risk their very lives in order to follow and obey God. If I need to cherish that way, it'd be real helpful if I could have like a vision like Abraham had, or could I have maybe a dream the way Joseph had? My reaction, of course, is Acts 2.17. Of course, when the Holy Spirit is poured out, and he is poured out on this day from Pentecost all the way through the return of Christ, there will be dreams and visions given to old men and young men. Don't withhold a vision or a dream. They may well come. But what Joseph and Abraham would say if they walked up the aisle and chatted right next to me right now, they'd say to you, why do you want a vision or a dream when you've got the spirit of the living God living inside of you? Don't forget where you are and who you are and what he's already done. In our day, he hadn't been poured out yet. You're living in the day when the spirit has been poured out on all flesh. So then it becomes a question, a cherishing question of whether you're cherishing right now in your heart what God has shown you from Matthew chapter 1 of who Christ is. The one who in Jesus' name takes away your sins, the fulfillment of all the promises that he has for you, even eternal life. And God himself, by his spirit, born in your heart. If you're having difficulty cherishing Christ right now. We're going to go to a very quick and, and brief moment of silent prayer. And I'm going to invite you to say between you and the Lord, not whether you're a new believer or you've been a believer a long time or you have never even said this before. Every one of you, I invite to say this. Lord Jesus, I cherish you. But there's something in me that wants to cherish you more. Would you help me? Let's go to the Lord right now. Thank you, Father, for Matthew 1. Thank you for these moments together in pondering the imponderables of your Holy Spirit coming down upon Mary and birthing your son in her. Thank you for the glories that we beheld. Thank you for the promise that you will hear when we address you in prayer. And we come to you now by the power of the Holy Spirit in Jesus' name, addressing you, Father, and asking for the gift of the ability to cherish you as your glory deserves. As your worth and value deserves. I pray now that in just this quiet moment. Many would say with me, I do cherish you, Lord Jesus. And yet there's something within me that longs to cherish you more. Would you cause me to cherish you as you deserve?
cause me to cherish you as you deserve. Cause me to venture much on your cherishing like Joseph and Abraham did. There is nothing that I could forego, no sacrifice I could make, no expensive thing I could give that could ever turn out to be a waste in the value that you possess. You are worth more. I pray, Father, for this sweet moment to settle on us heavy and strong. That every one of us might in this moment, because of these songs and this scripture and our time in prayer, find ourselves cherishing you such as we never have before. This I pray in the glorious and wonderful, imponderable name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Salvation is a personal thing. We cherish Jesus in our hearts. But it's not enough to just cherish it in our hearts. We have to respond. So we respond with worship. We respond with singing we spread the name. So let's stand together and respond by praising God. You made the starry host. You traced the mountain peaks. You paint the evening skies with wonders. The earth, it is your throne. From desert to the sea, all nature testifies your splendor. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, sing His greatness, our creation, praise the Lord. Your voice, you heights and all you depths, from furthest east to west, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. You reached into the dust in love, your spirit breathed. Formed us in your very likeness to know your wondrous works, to tell your mighty deeds, to join the everlasting chorus. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Sing his Your voice, you hide in all your depths. From 
enough for just us to praise him. Every nation, all the generations, all creation must praise the Lord. Let the children come. Let us all praise his name. Let symphonies resound. Let drums and choirs ring out. I'll come and hear the sound of worship. Let every nation bring its honors to the King. A roar of harmonies eternal. Everyone sing. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Sing His the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life to us a child is born to us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulders and his name shall be called wonderful counselor mighty god everlasting father prince of peace God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is well pleased. Merry Christmas! Lord, we join with the children, we join with the adults, and we join with men, women, and children from around the world. We join with planets and stars. We join with molecules and atoms. We join with all animals and creatures and beings within your world. And we say, thank you for Christ. Thank you for his death and resurrection. Thank you for the power and presence of his Holy Spirit. And let everyone say together and aloud, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. You are dismissed. Enjoy your meal together. Merry Christmas. <laughs>